Now, if you have a Bible, I'd like you to turn to the New Testament, the fifth book of the New Testament, which is the book of the Acts, and the 26th chapter. The book of the Acts, the book of the Acts, chapter 26, and we're going to take a few brief verses from this chapter before I relate to you how that God in His grace reached and saved me. I suppose one feels it necessary in times like this to kind of put in a bit of a disclaimer at the start. I am no one special. Well, I am actually. <laughs> I'm very special in the sight of God. But I'm no one special compared to all the people in this auditorium this afternoon. Because you're all special in the sight of God. And God desires to reach and save you this afternoon if you're not yet saved. If you've never put your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. But as a group of people together, I'm no one special compared to you. I'm just an ordinary person who grew up with the same sinful nature and potential that you have. And I put it into practice, just like you do. To varying degrees, we put our sinful nature into practice, and tragically, I put mine into practice in ways that I'm ashamed of. But God, in grace, reached into my life and brought to me the message of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, which I heard and believed and was saved. And so I'm here tonight to relay this to you, and of course it, it, I need to relay personal experience to you to be able to do this. But I, I just want to, sometimes we have what we call such and such as a trophy of grace. We are all those saved by faith through grace, or by grace, through faith, in our Lord Jesus Christ, we are all trophies of grace. Let us not ever be unclear about that. Acts 26 and verse 1. Then Agrippa said unto Paul, Thou art permitted to speak for thyself. And Paul stretched forth the hand and answered for himself, I think myself happy King Agrippa, because I shall answer for myself this day before thee, touching all things whereof I'm accused of the Jews, especially because I know thee to be an expert in all customs and questions which are among the Jews. Wherefore, I beseech thee to hear me patiently, and I would say the same this evening. Now, this particular conversion story I can take parts from it that very clearly link to my life. I can identify with some of these things. Verse 4, my manner of life from my youth, which was at the first among mine own nation at Jerusalem, know all the Jews which knew me from the beginning that uh, if they would testify that after the most straightest sect of our religion, I lived a Pharisee. 
down to verse number 9. I verily thought with myself that I ought to do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. Verse 12, whereupon, as I went to Damascus with authority and commission from the chief priests, at midday, O king, I saw in the way a light from heaven, above the brightness of the sun, shining round about me and them that journeyed with me. And when we were all fallen to the earth, I heard a voice speaking unto me and saying in the Hebrew tongue, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. And I said, Who art thou, Lord? And he said, I'm Jesus, whom thou persecutest. But rise up and stand on thy feet, for I have appeared unto thee for this purpose. Down to verse 18. To open their eyes and to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan unto God, that they may receive the forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among them which are sanctified by faith that is in me. Whereupon, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient unto the heavenly vision. I think that that would be sufficient to conclude our reading from the Word of God in order to relay to you my testimony. I'm clearly not from the United States and neither am I from Canada. I have come to you this afternoon well, I came to the United States on a plane from Australia, but I've got very good news for you. I'm not an Australian. That's very good news when you're an Englishman, as I am, with the rivalry between the Australians and the English. But I was born in the United Kingdom in the, in the uh, city of London, uh, and I began my life in the year 1976 in the southeast side of the city, in a, in a suburb called Lursham. Uh, I was born, as far as I know, without any complications, and I came into a family where there ultimately would be six children. At that stage, I was number four in the line of the six. I had two sisters that were older than me, and a brother that was older than me, and I was the second boy, just to kind of equal things out. And then followed me another two sisters. So eventually, four girls and two boys in the family in which I grew up in. I would not have any complaints to you this afternoon, and it would be wrong if I was to suggest anything otherwise than that I was born into a very good, loving, caring environment where my parents treated me well. I never knew anything other than to wake up every morning to enjoy a good hearty breakfast, to be taken to school in dad's car, to be uh, uh, picked up for lunch, which we'll explain a bit more in a little while as to exactly why that was necessary, and to again be brought home in the evening to have a warm home-cooked meal. My mother was at home. She did not work. My father was the breadwinner. And when we came home, mum was always there to greet us. And life was, was good. 
my parents cared for me. They taught us manners. They disciplined us, which didn't feel too good at times, but uh, it was necessary. And I trust that it may have borne some fruit in the life of an individual, but I grew up in a good home, and I'm very, very thankful for that. And I don't know, I'm speaking to various individuals this afternoon, and I don't know what kind of homes you are growing up in, whether you even know your parents, whether you live with grandparents or guardians, whether you don't actually have a home at all, because that's something else I will get to in the story of my life, where I reached a point where I did not have a home, but... I don't know your circumstance this afternoon. Maybe you can identify with the first part of my life at least. And you're growing up in a good home where your parents care for you. You ought to be very, very thankful for that. In, in our home, the Bible was on the shelf at least. Occasionally, I remember my father opening the Bible and reading. I think I remember one time him reading from the Proverbs. It just seemed fairly random and, and, and infrequent, but... We had the Bible in our home, and it was, uh, it was there displayed, and, and it was held in high esteem, and we, we knew it to be God's Word, the Bible, God's Word, the Scriptures. I was taught from a very early age that Jesus died on a cross for sinful people. I, I grew up understanding, at, at least in my mind, that Jesus was, is the Son of God. In fact, I had another child in the, in the class where I was going to school, and uh, we had a debate one day as to, he, he's not the Son of God. I said, well, he is. And, well, he's not. Well, he is. And, and I relate these things because they had been taught to me by my parents, and it simply was information that I had in my brain. And these things came from the Bible, and they're truths from the Bible. And to this day, I want to state, I am very, very thankful that those things were impressed into my mind at an impressionable age. And I would encourage everyone in this auditorium, in this meeting hall this afternoon, if you don't have a Bible, come to someone after this meeting, and we will give you a Bible freely. And you make sure you read that Bible. And you'll understand God's plan of salvation for your life as an individual. When I grew up in such a home, I enjoyed my home life growing up. But I want to tell you from the outset that I grew up in a very, very religious home. It would not be an understatement, and particularly for those who know me and who have been getting to know me over the last few days, uh, one particular man here that I'm thinking of would agree that the environment that I grew up in was a cult. It could be termed that. In fact, if you were to go to the dictionary for a definition of a cult, it's a system of religious veneration which ascribes towards a figure, a person, or an idol, an empty statue, veneration and worship based upon fear. That's the mark of a cult. Now, there are other marks which I will bring out to you uh, throughout the course of this relaying to you my testimony, but I grew up in that kind of environment. In fact, the environment that I grew up in was exceedingly sheltered. We would go to what you may term as church, 
what we termed as meeting, we would go every night of the week, 365 days of the year. So do not complain when you have to go out on a Wednesday night once a week for a meeting. My mother gathered up her six children and her parents before her and her parents before her and all the other. There was uh, 900 and, uh, approximately 950 people in the congregation that I gathered to weekly. And every mother and father and child were gathered together every single night of the week and I could run through those meetings with you. On Monday night it was a prayer meeting. On Tuesday night it was what they call a prophetic ministry meeting. They would try to explain the future, but certainly not based upon this book. Wednesday night was a Bible discussion. Thursday night was a Bible discussion. Friday night was what they used to call three addresses. Three men spoke from the Bible, but again, I'll explain to you in a moment or two just what that consisted of. And then Saturday morning was a Bible discussion. And then Sunday beginning at 6 o'clock in the morning. 6 o'clock in the morning on Sunday was the Lord's Supper, the breaking of bread, communion, whatever you may know it as. The Bible refers to it as the breaking of bread, but it was so distorted where I came from, you couldn't call it that. 6 o'clock in the morning was the breaking of bread. You finished that approximately around 7, 7.30. You went home for some breakfast and you came back at 9 o'clock for a Bible discussion. That was immediately followed. An hour from 9 to 10 was followed by three men who gave three further preachings from the Bible. Then you went home for lunch. Then you came back at 2 o'clock in the afternoon. You had three further uh, addresses. Then you went home again for tea and then you came back in the evening for three more. And that was Sunday. And then on Monday evening, we began again. And that was the system, the religious system that I grew up in. It was a system full of rules and regulations. I never once remember hearing the gospel, ever. It was a system based upon a leadership that controlled its, those that subscribed to the particular religion. There's about 45 thousand members around the world, a very, very close-knit, tight community. In fact, we had nothing to do with anybody outside. The meeting halls have barbed wire and locked gates and are windowless buildings. You grew up in an environment where there are hundreds and hundreds of rules and regulations. When you get to 12 years old, you cannot ride a bike. You're not allowed to kick a football, even just a kick a football around the back garden. There are certain foods you had to eat. You could not have turnips on your trousers. You remember when it was the fashion to have ironed in turnips on the trousers. Well, my mother brought the trousers, of course, uh, bought the trousers from the shop and had to unstitch the turnips and press them out. We had to wear a white shirt to every single meeting. And if the white shirt had brown buttons, the brown buttons had to be unstitched and white buttons got stitched on. You weren't allowed to wear a tie or a jacket because it was seen as too ostentatious. We had to be humble people. And there were hundreds and hundreds of rules and regulations that I grew up in. And that was the kind of environment I knew nothing else. And I lived 
according to this religious code of conduct as the strictest, one of the strictest members, just like all the others, just like this man, Saul, as he was formerly known as, Paul, as he was here writing, he lived according to the strictest sect of the Pharisees, and he adhered to all the man-made rules and regulations, and he thought of a truth that it was this that would get him finally to heaven at last. Finally, he would find forgiveness for his sin according to the manner of life that he lived. And I thought no different, my friends. I don't know about you this afternoon and exactly where you stand. And maybe you think that with your religi religiosity, that you will somehow merit favor with God. And by that you will find forgiveness. I'm here to tell you that the devil has sold you a lie. And the word of God tells us, for by grace are ye saved through faith. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. The cross of Christ would become a vain thing. If I could find heaven and merit forgiveness with God without the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ ever having been shed. But I sincerely thought, as I was taught, I was taught that I had been born into the holy fellowship of God's Son. That was the terminology, the specific terminology that was used. I was born into the holy fellowship of God's Son. I was baptized. Really, I just got wet. When I was a baby, I was put under the water as a baby. I started taking what you would know as the emblems, the bread and the wine, from approximately six months old, as soon as I could ingest food. That's when the first piece of bread was given. It was given to every baby as soon as they could ingest food. My mother would have dipped her finger into the wine and placed it upon my tongue. And I grew up believing that because I partook of those things and because I had been born into this special, apparently privileged sphere, that as long as I stayed there and as long as I adhered to the rules and as long as I pledged allegiance to the leader who was held, and this is quote, who was held at a hair's breadth from Christ. They said every leader had seen the risen Christ and I believed it. I'm very thankful this weekend we've been discovering, displaying things from the Word of God that would deny these very things. My friends, come back to the Bible. Put your trust in what God has said. There's a man in the Bible, his name is Abraham. Do you know what it says about Abraham? It says this, Abraham believed God. It doesn't say Abraham believed about God. It says he believed God. And there's a vast difference between believing about God and believing what God has said in his word for us to understand. And so, naturally, I just grew up with no other thought than if I kept to these things, I would eventually go to heaven at the last. The trouble was, when you're a teenage boy and you're trying to keep hundreds of rules... It's quite difficult. Well, at least it was for me. Maybe that's some reflection of my character or personality. But 
I found it very difficult to keep rules. One of the rules was that you were not allowed to listen to any pre-recorded music. We certainly weren't allowed to listen to the radio. We did not have a radio in our home. When my father bought a car, the radio got taken out, the aerial got snapped off because these were apparently things from the devil. You're not, you weren't allowed to have any kind of remote device that even included remote devices that opened the garage door. They were banned. We weren't allowed to live in houses that joined walls to somebody else that was not in the religion. We all had to live in detached houses. If you had shared drains, they had to be separated. If you bought a house that shared drains with a neighbor or shared a driveway with a neighbor, the fence had to go up, the drains had to be dug up. Now, these things may seem extraordinary to you, but they're very true, and they were just normal for me as I was growing up, because this is the line of separation from the world, isn't it? These are the things that define us as a Christian. Don't worry about the blood. Don't worry about the cross of Christ. We worry a lot about religious rule-keeping. I suppose it might give you some appreciation for the fact that I get a bit scared now as a Christian. <laughs> and I do find certain rules being elevated to the status of the Bible. But I grew up like that and I knew no different. At the age of 17, I had been breaking the rules. I had got myself a radio Walkman. You know, going to school was a very difficult thing. At that stage, we still went to public schools, although since then, they have their own schools now. But at that stage, I went to a public school, and the, pe the boys in my class would mock me. <laughs> they would say, Dear, now you probably don't know what the, the TV show Neighbours is. No? No one? No, it's an Australian TV show. And, and then local TV shows. Oh, did you watch Neighbours last night? Because they knew we didn't have a TV. And I started to feel a bit out of place. Now, when you are trying to do things for God and you're not saved, you do feel out of place. and You kind of feel ashamed. When you are saved and you live according to this book, there's no need to feel ashamed. <laughs> I'm not ashamed tonight of the cross of Christ. I'm not ashamed to share with you of the mighty power of God that transforms lives. Sinners forgiven, coming from darkness into light, from the power of Satan to God. I'm not ashamed to tell you these things, for the power of sin in my life with its eternal consequence which would take me down to the lake of fire has been broken for me. Because the Christ of God suffered on the cross and took my sin and bore my punishment in his own body that I may never perish and that you may never perish. I'm thankful to stand here tonight and tell you these things. But when I was at school and you're trying to live for these rules and regulations and there's no conviction in the heart and there's no real understanding as to why you're doing these things, I was ashamed. And so I started to lie to the children at school. And, oh, we got a TV last week. Got caught out a few times. Never pays to lie. 
One day I got a radio Walkman and for the very first time I can still remember it. As a teenage boy, I listened to my first songs. I used to lie in bed at night and I could still actually tell you the very first songs that were on the radio at that time. Well, it wasn't long before it was discovered. Hiding things under the mattress is not really a very good hiding place. You, you boys probably know about that, don't you? You try to hide things and... Did you know you can never hide anything from God? I thought I could hide things from my parents and it worked for a while. And I might have succeeded had it not been such a silly hiding place. But you know, I had to find out this. I'll never hide anything from God. Because God was watching me all the time. He's watching you sitting in the seat there. And He knows exactly what you think of Him. And He knows whether you've put your trust in His Son. God looks upon you in the seat tonight. And it's of no coincidence that you're here to listen to the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and His saving power. One who was raised from the dead in mighty power. The mighty power of God displayed against the devil. And the devil has no power to hold you tonight. You can put your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm going to get ahead of myself just briefly here. But I put my trust in the Lord Jesus Christ at the side of a road. Just ask the Lord Jesus to save me. He saved me at the side of a road. What a saviour he is. But at that time, we had men in the religion that called themselves priests. And they would come and they would give you what was termed as a priestly. Now this was all taken from the Old Testament, you see. And they had actually other men in the religion that were called Levites. You might have heard those kinds of terms in the Old Testament. But we see this is taken out of context. And these priests, they came and they thought with some authority that they could uh, in interview the subject that had disobeyed the rules. And so it wasn't long before there was a knock on the door and the priests came around and they interviewed me as a teenage boy. And we've heard from your father and from your mother that you have, have broken the rules and we, we, we want to speak to you about it. And is there anything else that you can confess to us while we're here? And so there was a few other things that came out. And before long, there was another knock at the door. And I'll never forget the night that those two men came and stood at the foot of my bed. And they said, Clive, last night we had a meeting about you. And we have decreed that you're unfit to continue among us. Therefore, we are excommunicating you. One of them said to me, the younger of the two, he said to me, now do you know what that means, Clive? And I said, yes. I understood fully what it meant. I'll tell you in a moment. I said, yes, I understood fully what it meant. I knew that it meant that from that very moment, I could never speak to my mother again or my father or my brother or my sisters 
or my cousins. I did not have a living biological relative and still do not have a living biological relative that was not within the system. Every one of my relatives and extended family, immediate family was within the system. We all had grown up. But I knew from that moment it meant that I could have no contact. Now, I'm going to display to you the severity of that. From that moment when they left my bedroom door and went down the stairs. This is how serious they considered excommunication at least. From that very moment, my mother would not speak one further word to me. The very next time it was for a meal. While I was in the house, I was, it was a Wednesday evening and I was given till the weekend to move out. And I, I went on the Friday. But from that Wednesday to the Friday, my mother at mealtime knocked on the door and I opened my bedroom door. And she passed to me a meal and she could not say a word. And I shut the door and ate my meal within the, the silence of the bedroom. Most times with tears falling down the cheeks. I went downstairs, and as I went down the stairs like that, as I, I went to go down the stairs, doors would shut within the house of my siblings. My little sister at that time, who was 12 years younger than me, just a, a wee girl of about six years old, she, I remember coming down the stairs, and she said, Clive's coming. And they all went in and shut the door. So there was just one pathway to the front door and I went out of the front door and went for a walk and don't remember where I went. But I do remember this. It was a very lonely time. On the Friday, I collected the few belongings that I had and I left home and I knew that the moment I left home, my mother sadly would cut out little white stickers. And every photo that in, well, was in the photo album with my face in, would be blanked out. So you'd see the faces of the photo, but there would be a sticker over my face. For they believed that once you are on the outside, you are unfit for any further relationship. They literally treat you like you are dead. The first two months were undoubtedly the hardest two months I have ever experienced in my entire life. I had nowhere to go. There was a boy that did a paper run outside our house and I spoke to him and asked him, could I come and sleep on the floor of your parents' house, over your bedroom? He said, yes, we were both teenagers, so he said, yes. He asked his mum, and his mum said yes. And so I went and slept on his floor just for a, a week or two. I don't remember exact times. And then I went and slept on a floor of a, another person's house. And this kind of went on for a little while until I got myself a job. And I was earning £100 a week doing gardening. The rent for a little tiny bedsit, which is a house, uh, a room in a communal house with lots of other men, shared bathroom and shared kitchen, was 50 pounds a week, and you had to pay four weeks' rent in advance, so 200 pounds. 
And I had to, of course, lodge on these floors. And I was homeless until I managed to get this money together. And finally, I went and paid the deposit. And I began in one of these little rented accommodations. I couldn't cook. I couldn't clean. I didn't know how to use a washing machine. I ha it came from a very sheltered environment, as you can understand. I had been used to 365 days of meetings, and suddenly now I had nothing. And you can understand it was a, a very, very lonely existence. A mark of a cult is that they thrive on social interaction to keep them going, to feed for, off one another. A mark of a cult is it's based on fear, family, and finance. Those three things are always the mark of a cult. And that's exactly where I had come from. Fear, family was a big thing, and finances were controlled from the cradle to the grave. I suddenly had no family. I remember my Dear friends, I remember times when I would walk down to where my parents lived and I knew exactly what times they were going out to meetings. And there was a wall opposite where my parents lived and I would get behind this wall and I would crouch down and I would look through the little bricks where they had a space, each brick, and I would just watch my family as they came out of the house and got into the car and drove away just to catch a glimpse of my dad and mum, just to see my brother. I met my brother in the street as he was walking up the street. He spoke to me very roughly, and uh, he said, you're, you're in the wrong place and you're going to hell. Well, uh, the conversation didn't last long. Another occasion, I was walking down the high street, and uh, I, I saw my father walking towards me, and he got to about within this distance, and, and I said, Dad, and he looked up at me, and he just turned and ran. He ran across the street, and when I got to the edge of the street, he was just running down the street, and they could have nothing to do with me. I went and knocked on my mother's front door in tears one day, and I mean tears. I mean sobbing tears. I went through a very traumatic time where I would just sob every night to sleep until you felt like you just couldn't cry anymore. I knew what it was to be lonely, but I did not know what it was to be as lonely as Christ. He's the only man that's ever known true loneliness. For on the cross of Calvary, he hung in darkness and he bore the entire weight of the sin of the world. And he bore my sins in his own body. And I tell you, I say this afternoon, hallelujah, what a savior. The mighty son of God. I was a miserable wretch in my sin. And the mighty Son of God left heaven's throne to come to planet earth with all its sin and sorrow and shame and hung upon a cross that a guilty wretch from southeast London might be saved. What a Savior. 
we have to proclaim. And so that you might be saved, boys. And so that you might be saved, girls. Men and women might come to understand their need. And I had a great need, although I didn't realize it at the time. And I went on in my life. And in fact, I tried to go back to the religion, but they interviewed me and they said that I wasn't, they didn't deem me to be repentant enough. So they, they weren't going to let me back. And from that moment, I left and I determined, dead in the gutter or not, I would never go back. And I meant it. And from that moment on, you could understand, friends in this hall this afternoon, Christian friends in this hall this afternoon, you can understand that from that moment, I began to hate Christians. And I really mean hate Christians. I, I, I did some things which I am not ashamed, uh, no, I'm ashamed of. I would go to religious places of worship and damage their property, pull the tiles off the roof, rip up fences, break things, try to damage church buildings. And I suddenly felt such anger and hostility to people that call themselves Christians. Friends, Christian friends in the hall this afternoon, reach out to such. I didn't, know, I didn't know any Christians. I had no one in my life. And I pursued a course which took me down a pathway of sinfulness and shame and sorrow. You see... There was one pe person waiting for me, and that was the devil. And I pursued a course with friends that took me into places I never expected to go. I became a criminal. I was hauled before the courts when I was eventually caught. I was threatened with a prison sentence. In fact, they gave me a suspended sentence. And I vowed at that time that I would change. That I, I, I wouldn't do these things. At, excuse me, at 20 years old, I thought, well, I'm going to leave England and I'm going to make a better life somewhere else. And I went to Israel. I was in Israel for 11 months, 10 and a half months. And in Israel, I, I, I worked and uh, I, I sought to find a better life. I applied for a green card there to stay, but I, I wasn't allowed that. But I remember even in Israel, looking up to the hills just beyond the Sea of Galilee. I lived three kilometers south of the Sea of Galilee for seven months. I remember looking up to those hills on occasions and thinking, Jesus walked in those hills. I remember actually swimming in the Sea of Galilee and thinking, Jesus walked on this water going around the 14 stations of the cross in Jerusalem, thinking, Jesus walked along these cobblestones. But it was a historical fact, and it meant nothing to me. I returned back to London, and I went away, and in 1999, that was in 1997, I was in Israel, back to London. Then in 1999, I decided I would try to move to Australia, well, I would test it out for a year. So I went for a year working holiday. I was in a relationship with a girl at that time, and we both went together. We went to New Zealand for a year, and then to, to, sorry, to Australia for a year, and to New Zealand for three months, and then back to the United Kingdom. When I got back to London, the relationship broke down. That was the year 2000. The end of the year 2000, Christmas 2000, 
I was back in London, back on my own. Just had a backpack full of clothes. And I remember thinking, has it come to this again? Here I was back in my own city, just had the clothes that I was wearing, living in a hostel, couldn't turn to any family or friends. And I determined at that point, cutting out uh, some detail, I determined at that point that I would endeavor to move back to Australia. In Australia, the sun shines. And in Australia, all the problems will be gone. In Australia, they've got nice beaches and things, sinful practices that you can indulge in. And I don't know about you this afternoon, but maybe you think that there's a change on the horizon. And when I move here, and when I complete that course, when I pay off the mortgage, when I enter into retirement, when I achieve a certain point in life on the social scale or the bank balance, then things will be different. Then I will be happy. That's how I thought, my friends. But I want to tell you this. When I got off the plane in Australia, you know what I had with me, apart from my suitcase? I had the baggage of my sin. I could put my suitcase down, but I couldn't put my sin down. And it was taking me down. I want to tell you, your sin is taking you down. And you can't rid yourself of it. You can't take it off. It's a burden upon you. And it's only Christ that has the power. Listen. The forgiveness of sin. That's what we read. From the power of Satan to the very power of God. But I was blind. And I started life in Melbourne just as I had been in London. I was 20 five years old at this time, 25 when I left London in September, and now at the end of the year in Melbourne and I got a job. Well, <coughs> I, I was working uh, for a rem furniture removals company, and uh, we were, I was in the yard and there was a man who used to contract from this company, and he came in and one day he, he drove up and stopped next to me and he said he was looking for someone and he was actually interested in eventually selling his business and I kind of knew that from some of the guys at, uh, at the work there and I pricked up my ears because I, I always wanted to you know become wealthy become a millionaire wouldn't that be good if you could become a millionaire I thought that would be the answer and so I jumped at the opportunity and I said I would go to work for him but you know what I found out I found out the very first day I worked for him something about that man. His name was Christian. And do you know what he was? He wasn't only a Christian by name. He was a Christian by nature. Do you know how I found that out? Because the very first day I worked for him, we got home that evening and he disappeared into his house and I was just about to get into my car and he said, just wait there one minute. I'm just going to get something for you. And he came back out and he had a little black book in his hand and he put it into my hand and he said, here's a Bible for you. Take it. Read it. And he gave me a Bible the very, very first day I ever worked for him. And I took that Bible and I realized I've got a job with a Christian man. And I despised that, for I despised Christians. 
and we would be going along and he would speak to me about the Lord and he would, he would just bring it into everyday conversation as our brother was saying and he would just say, isn't it a lovely day? God is good with the weather and he would speak about this and speak about that and I remember going along and holding onto the seat of the truck and clenching my toes and my teeth and thinking, wouldn't this man just shut up? But he didn't. But he never kind of got me into a corner and preached at me. He just talked about the things of the Lord as though they were normal. Then one day he said something, and I'll never forget this, time or for eternity. He was speaking about another man at work, and he said, Clive. He said, that man, he's living in sin. He was living with a woman, and he wasn't married to her. And he said, Clive, he's living in sin. And it wasn't so much the, the uh, details of this particular man's life who was living in sin, but it was that three-worded statement, not even a Bible verse as such. And I went away and I couldn't tell you what I had for breakfast or what the weather was like that day or what kind of job we were doing or whereabouts in the city we were. But I remembered that statement, living in sin, living in sin, living in sin. And I went home that night and I went to the pub and I picked up my beer. And the very first thing that came to my mind was living in sin. And I went home to bed that night and I lay my head up on the pillow and it was living in sin. And I woke up in the middle of the night and the very first thing that came to my mind was living in sin. And I realized I was living in sin, and I had been living in sin all my life. And God used that statement by His Holy Spirit to rivet into my soul the truth that I was living in sin. My friend, this afternoon, without Christ, you are living in sin. Maybe I'm speaking to someone here this afternoon and you are not only living in sin, you're indulging in sin. My lifestyle was of such that we would go to parties on the weekend and we would have, there would be drug parties and alcohol and we would be intoxicated. Sometimes two, three, four days. Three twice, uh, three times I almost lost my life, twice on overdose. Just reading about a young 15-year-old girl in the United Kingdom in the news this week who took three ecstasy tablets and died. One night I took 12 and overdosed and found myself in the morning around a toilet bowl. Does it sound like fun? Doesn't, does it? That's where sin will take you. A good home to a toilet bowl. And I am thankful to tell you that God preserved my life. He could have just taken me into eternity like that. Well, one time standing on a bridge and blaming God for my circumstances, I actually lifted up my fist. I could take you to the very spot. It was the same bridge that I looked over and wondered if I should just throw myself on the train tracks. I remember looking up and shaking my fist at God and blaming Him for my circumstances. And God could have just... Goodbye. But He didn't. Because He loved me. And he loves you. 
Instead, he sent his son to take what we deserve, that we might be saved. Time went on, a few months went on. And eventually the conviction became so dreadful that I decided to pray. I went to bed one night and before I got down, before I got into bed, I got down on my knees. I was living in a very ungodly house, a very ungodly house. Other young men in this house and I got down and I, I prayed to God. And I simply just said this, God, if you're there, if you're real, please help me to know. And I asked for three things, and I meant it. Whether I knew these things subconsciously, I can't tell you. I certainly didn't consciously know that they were in the Bible, but they are in the Bible. I asked God for three things, and I meant it. I said, if you're there and if you're real, please open my heart. Please open my ears, and please open my eyes. And then I got up in the morning before I went to work. I got down on my knees and I prayed for the very same three things. And I went to work that day. And my boss left me on a job. And there was a woman whose house I was packing. And as I was packing the things up, she stopped me about 10 o'clock in the morning. And she said, do you want a cup of coffee, Clive? Now, you have to recognize I had long hair. And I smoked. And my language was not that of a Christian. Now I say this because she said to me as we were having a cup of coffee, she said, do you believe in Jesus Christ? What a bizarre thing to say. And I said, yeah, sure. I believe Jesus existed. I believe he even died on a cross. And I said, yes. Before I could go any further, she told me how she became a Christian. Do you want to know what she said? We were standing there and we did not know each other from a bar of soap. And she said to me, she said, well, she said, I came to be a Christian like this. She said, I was born and raised in a, in a very strict home in the south of France, a very strict religious home. She said, when I got to the age of 21, I decided it wasn't for me anymore. And she said, as a result, my whole family cut me off. So she said, I left France and came to Australia for a better life. But in Australia, she said, I had a, a baby so premature. She was in a relationship with a man, and she had a, a baby so premature. And in the hospital, a Christian lady came to her and talked to her about the Lord Jesus and told her the gospel. She said, in that hospital, I put my trust in Jesus Christ. I trusted him. I'm a Christian now. And she didn't know me. And she didn't know I'd prayed the night before and the morning. I tell you, I went out to the truck. I wasn't so tough after all. I got into the back of the truck and actually closed the door on myself and just had a cry. And I composed myself and went back. And about two weeks later, my boss said to me, he said, Clive, there's a man over from England. He's giving, my boss was in assembly fellowship. He said, there's a man over from England and he's giving some uh, teaching meetings, some Bible teaching meetings in a, in a hall in Melbourne. Why don't you come along and listen to him? And I said, no, I'll be okay, thanks. Whew, no. It's too far. I want to say, if God's speaking to you in this meeting, don't resist him. Let him in. 
And I said, no, I'm okay. And these meetings were going every night of the week, as they do. And the brother's name was Mr. Norman Mellish. I didn't know him. I'd never heard of him. Didn't mean anything to me. Some of you may know him. And I, I, on the Monday night, I got home from work, and I knew this was going on. I went to bed in turmoil, and Tuesday night the same, and Wednesday night the same. Thursday night, I got home from work, and I thought, I can't stand this anymore. And I picked up the phone to my boss, and, are you going to that meeting thing tonight? He said, yeah, I am going. I said, do you mind if, if I go? I think he must have broken the speed limit, because in about three seconds, he was at my door. I got into the car and I went to the meeting that night. You know what the man was ministering on? It was a Christian teaching meeting. He was ministering on 1 Corinthians chapter 11 with the subject of headship. Now, if you're not a Christian tonight, that probably doesn't mean anything to you because it didn't mean anything to me either. In fact, teaching on headship, it all went over my head. But I want to tell you, this didn't. This didn't. I told you I had long hair, roughly down to about there. And he came across a verse in that very chapter that says this, Doth not even nature itself teach you that if a man have long hair, it's a shame unto him? And he didn't beat around the bush, and he didn't not read it because I was there, a little gospel hall, and I was sitting somewhere near the back, and he spoke about the shameful thing for a man to have long hair. And he said, didn't even God put it within the very being for us to have short hair as men? And he went through these things, and I sat in the seat, I became so convicted. I'd never heard the word of God preached like that. And I was so convicted that night, I went home and shaved all my hair off. But I tell you, I wasn't saved. Shaving my hair off wouldn't get me saved. And the next day at work, my boss said to me, There's a, he's, he, the same man's going to be preaching the gospel on Sunday night at the gospel hall in Dandenong in Melbourne. Why don't you go along and listen to him? And I thought... I am going to go, rain, hail or shine, I'm going. And that night I got in my van. The Saturday night I had been at a party, intoxicated and under the influence of drugs. 24 hours later, in my van I was making my way to a little gospel hall. That night I heard the gospel for the first time in my life. And he read from Acts chapter 10. He spoke of a man named Cornelius. He spoke of a man named Cornelius who was very religious, but he wasn't saved. And then he told us that he wanted to actually tell us about a triad of conversions, three conversions. And he went back to Acts chapter 9. And he told us about a savage man named Saul who tried to destroy the Christians. And God reached him and saved him. Then he went back to Acts chapter 8 and he told us about a man who was an Ethiopian eunuch and he was on his way to Jerusalem and he was looking for God and he didn't find him and he was on his way back again. He wanted to worship God. And he was reading the scriptures and he was a seeking sinner. And he told us that night, isn't it time you came to Christ? And I can hear it as though it echoes down the time now as though fresh as though it was yesterday. I can hear it in my very ears. He said, isn't it time you came to Christ? Isn't it time you came to the narrow gate? 
And he said, isn't it time you left behind the worldly throng that's going down to the pit? And he used that terminology. And I had no problem understanding what it meant. Isn't it time you left behind the worldly throng that's going down to the pit? And it was almost as though I could see it before my eyes. I got out of the hall that night. I got in my van. I drove away with the tears streaming down my cheeks. I got about two streets. I stopped my van at the side of the road. And I knew I was a guilty sinner, bound for hell. But I knew this, that Christ had died for me. And I had heard that in His mighty resurrection power, He could save my life and my eternity from disaster. And at the side of a road on a winter's night in the dark with the rain falling and gripping onto the steering wheel, I cried out to the Lord Jesus to save me. Just something like this, Lord Jesus, please save me. And in an instant, if it could have been seen, he reached his mighty hand into that van as God took up his indelible pen and wrote my name in the book of life. And there was another soul saved for all eternity. And I thank God that he was ever gracious to me, allowing me to hear the gospel. A poor Lonely, sinful individual that rightly deserved the judgment of God, he reached and saved by his goodness and grace. And I stand here now and it's just turned past 15 years since I was saved. I'm still a very young Christian. But I thank God that these past 15 years for the new life that he's given me, and I thank God for the eternity that's fixed and sure. And that one day I will lay my eyes upon the Savior that died for me. And I want to tell you, I don't mind if I have to push you out the way. But I want to put my arms around the Lord Jesus. I will do. No doubt about that. I'll feel his embrace too. Those on resurrection ground, you remember Mary, she hugged them. And the women that held him by the feet. And I can't wait to get to the feet of the Lord Jesus and just put my arms around his feet. Nail pierced feet for me, for you. But will you be there? Are you saved? The Bible says, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you shall be saved. Now, would you spare me? Three minutes, because I want to tell you something that I usually tell at the end of my conversion story. About 18 months after I was saved, I was back at the Dandenong Gospel Hall to give my testimony, the place where I'd heard the gospel that night. They asked me to come back and give my testimony, which I did, and just something like this, I relayed my testimony. I didn't say my name. And I gave out a hymn at the end and walked off the platform and up the aisle. 
And there was a gentleman, a grey-haired gentleman, a white-haired gentleman actually, approximately in his 70s, and he stood up just from about there, and he stopped me in the aisle, and he just simply said to me, is your name Clive Barber? I said, yes. He said, do you know Laurie Twynham? I said, yes. And he told me a little story. Now, I'm going to fill you in on a little bit of detail very briefly. Laurie Twynham was the uncle of a friend of mine in England. And Laurie Twynham was a Christian man. Laurie Twynham was a Christian man who used to send me gospel tracts in a Christmas card at Christmas time. And in fact, I told my friend that don't give your uncle my address anymore. I don't want any of these things. And I never read one of those Christian tracts. And about five years, I hadn't heard anything. I'd moved to Australia, and of course, I had been saved. And he said, this man said to me, well, he said, when you left England, Laurie Twynham, he heard from your friend Graham that you were leaving England, and he had one friend in Australia that he knew in Bundaberg. Bundaberg is up in Queensland here. I was down in Melbourne. It's about 2,500 kilometers and he said that uh, Laurie Twynham had phoned his friend in Bundaberg, Queensland, and had said that there's a young man out there. He's come out, and he's, uh, he's living in Australia. His name's Clive Barber, and he needs the gospel, and I've tried to witness to him, etc. I can only imagine the rest of the conversation. And, and uh, so he said, if you ever bump into him, give him the gospel. He needs it. Well, two and a half thousand kilometers away, it's not likely that we're going to bump into, into each other in the street. So... Trevor Hill, up here in Queensland, phoned a friend he had in Melbourne and said the same story. There's actually a boy who's in Melbourne, and his name's Clive Barber, and if you ever uh, bump into him or come, pray for him anyway. And that was the man I was shaking hands with. He said, while you were preaching, your wife, my wife nudged me, and she said, I think this is the boy we've been praying for. And they had no idea that I'd got saved. In fact, they didn't usually come to that gospel hall. They went to another one. And that night they heard there was a testimony meeting. And God, by his sovereign power, introduced us. And they had prayed for me for an extra 18 months <laughs> to be saved. And that night they learned. Miracle of all miracles. God had saved my soul. Be encouraged, Christians, to pray. Pray for the unsaved. And if you are not saved in this hall tonight, don't leave without putting your trust in the Lord, who is Jesus Christ.